Our reading this evening is from Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 15, and can be found on page 1111 in the Pew Bibles. So that's Acts chapter 16, beginning at verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of sorry, throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mycenae and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, he got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Simothraki, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Thank you, Monica, for reading to us and giving us such excellent pronunciation of those uh, proper nouns. It's going to be tricky for me to match that. Um, we'll see what, what we come up with. Don't worry too much. Nobody really knows how many of these places were pronounced, so we'll, we'll just get by. Let's pray with those words open uh, in front of us, if you would. We thank you for these place names, these points on a map that just remind us afresh, Father, that real places, real people, uh, real points in history uh, you have intersected with in the past. You're not uh, removed from us or distant from us. You uh, touch our lives um, as individuals and as communities, and we pray so much even tonight, for that unstopping work of yours to continue, that you would meet with us, that we leave here knowing that we've not been here by accident, you had an appointment with us, and we pray for your purposes, therefore, to be advanced. We ask it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. I am... Watch the weather with great interest and uh, listen to the forecast at every available opportunity in the course of the day. And it's been fun recently with this uh, pretty turbulent weather to see what's going on. Actually, the forecast has done a pretty good job, as far as I can tell, in recent uh, times here. But there is an acknowledged scientific reason for why forecasting is a difficult skill. Um, I know I've mentioned it from the pulpit before. It's called the butterfly effect. I think it was discovered by an American forecaster, Edward Lawrence, in the 1960s. He worked out a, a computer program which, once he typed in certain weather data, 
could in theory calculate what the subsequent weather pattern was going to be, but one day he made a mistake, or rather he didn't fill out to the nth decimal point what he could have done. He missed out three decimal places in a piece of data. Instead of putting in 0.506127, he just inserted 0.506 in one bit of input. And he discovered his mistake. It was such a, a minute mistake, only uh, one part in a thousand pretty much, that he was sure it couldn't change the results a great deal. But just to be thorough, he decided to go back and run the program with the full figure in place and was amazed when he did that, uh, when the revised weather pattern, pattern came out completely different. Um, couldn't believe it. He said it was as if a tiny atmospheric disturbance in China, no greater than the beat of a butterfly's wing, should a week or so later give rise to a Force 12 hurricane, the other side of the world in New York. Um, hence the name of this discovery, the butterfly effect. And hence, therefore, the problems faced by weather forecasters in that the satellite pictures don't always pick up all those different butterflies in China and other places around the world. But this principle of a, a tiny, apparently insignificant fact causing a momentous effect out of all proportion to its original size happens in lots of other situations, not just the weather. There's this children's ditty that I've always remembered. For want of a nail, the shoe was lost. For want of a shoe... The horse was lost. For want of a horse, the rider was lost. For want of a rider, the battle was lost. For want of a battle, the kingdom was lost. I'm trying to say, I suppose, that one single nail can be the difference between victory and defeat for an entire nation. And what goes for single nails, I think you'd have to say, can go for a single life as well. There's that lovely old piece of writing that nobody quite knows who it was written by about Jesus Christ called One Solitary Life. It says he was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another village, living in a carpenter's shop till he was 30. Then for three years, he was a traveling preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held public office. He never had a family or owned a house. He didn't go to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave. And then it continues. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings and queens that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of human beings on this earth as much as that one solitary life which is, I think you could say, the butterfly effect working this time not in the weather but throughout history in the instance of Jesus Christ. Because the ripples of that one solitary life didn't die away at his death. In fact, the ripples have become great tidal waves spreading and expanding 
till they take in the whole wide world. And the book of Acts, which we've been studying in recent weeks, uh, really charts that. It maps the early stages of that process of the ever-increasing circles of Jesus' influence uh, beginning to spread around the world. I think I can see the print in this large print Bible slightly better. So let me get to the relevant places so I can read from, from that. What we've seen in our series uh, so far is we've witnessed the first Jew-Gentile Jew church in Antioch reaching out, haven't we, to Cyprus and the province of Asia as well. And then we've just seen in chapter 15 the, uh, the cradle of Christianity, Jerusalem, acknowledging that God had been at work. By the end of the book, in Acts, there's a church in the hub of the known world, in Rome. And you're meant to be saying, who would have believed it possible? So this apparently insignificant local preacher, Jesus, leading a campaign, achieving a, a massive conquest with a power and a following that no Roman emperor ever had. And that's the story of the book of Acts. In his gospel, Luke, the writer, said that he told us what Jesus began to do and teach. In Acts, he's telling us that the earthly life and death of Jesus definitely wasn't the end of the story. It was just the beginning. And from that one solitary life, the earth-shattering effects are still being felt today. Now, today's section in Acts 16 presents us with a, a fascinating episode in the advance of Jesus Christ through his world. We travel back to Philippi by the end of our little section and Paul's visit there. It's around 49 AD. It's less than 20 years after Jesus' death. Philippi is in modern-day Macedonia, just to the north of Greece. So you wouldn't have seen it in the words as they were read, but this is the moment when the gospel broke through for the first time into Europe. And that represents a significant stage in the advance of the good news. Once Jesus Christ's flag is planted in Europe, which was to become the closest you ever get to being a Christian continent, or have done at this point at any rate, then the gospel is to spread throughout the world. It's a significant moment you ought to have, if you want, a, a finger in the back cover of the map, which may help us as we read through the verses we've got. But you capture some sense of the importance of this new stage in the spread of the gospel through the world in verses 6 to 10 of the chapter. The end of the previous chapter, 15, has Paul in Syria and Turkey. He's going around strengthening churches which were founded on his first missionary journey. But then in chapter 16, you get this sort of impression of a man running his head into a stone wall wherever he turns. You read verses 6 to 8 uh, again in the Bibles. Verse 6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus wouldn't allow them to. 
So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. Let's leave it there for the moment. We're not told how the roadblocks happened. We're not told how the Holy Spirit stopped them heading into Asia or Bithynia. I suppose we shouldn't speculate too much. It, It might have been a word from God, or it could have been some sort of inner feeling of unease. It could have been an impassable river that was in spate. It might have been a military roadblock. We don't particularly know. But you can imagine, can't you, just as the story is told in those few verses, the frustration. They're keen to tell others about Jesus, and they can't do it. Nobody needs a special word from God to do that activity of passing the gospel on. All believers are under orders to spread the message about Jesus. But here, wherever Paul and his men turn, north, south, east, the door slams shut. And their way is blocked by a repeated no from heaven. I mean, actually, it's often been that way in the spread of the gospel. Um, I could think of two examples easily. William Carey, the great Baptist missionary, he grew up wherever it was, not too far from here, Northampton or somewhere like that. He wanted to go to the South Sea Islands in Polynesia and ended up instead all his life in India. Adnaram Judson, he wanted to go to India, and you might say it's not too far away, but actually he ended up in Burma. And I can think of other instances where that sort of thing has happened, the Elliots, for example. I wonder if you've learned that the value, the positive value of negative guidance in your life, that's to say the way the frustrations and the roadblocks and the dead ends are actually God's way of getting you to the place where he wants you to be. doesn't always feel that way at the time, but it's a fact. That's what happened here. North, south, east, the door slammed shut. And at last, they head west to the westernmost tip of Turkey, and God's plan becomes clear at that point. This is reading on from verse 9. During the night... Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. So without hesitation, they head off across the sea to Philippi, which is a major Roman base across the Aegean Sea. Well, let me read on from verse 10 to 12. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. I think Monica got that just right. Samothraki is exactly how it should be pronounced, something like that. I'm just reading it phonetically. Neapolis, from there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. Obviously, there was no physical line for them to cross so that they knew that the Christian message was going at this point from Asia to Europe, but that was the momentous advance that was being made. Um, Before we move on, 
I think it's important for us to acknowledge how momentous a step it was. And I'll explain why. Um, my point here is that we aren't necessarily supposed to see all the details of these stories in Acts as patterns for us as we spread the gospel today. Sometimes people read the book of Acts, um, I could say, in the flat. And they say, look, it happened this way to them, so it ought to be happening to us in the same way. Paul had a vision of a man from Macedonia saying, come over here and help us. In other words, give us the most important help that it's possible to give anyone. Give us the gospel. Come over here and help us. So we think, well, I expect God to give me similar visions as to how and where I preach the gospel. Or a lack of such a vision is taken as divine permission not to preach the gospel to someone. I'm not going to talk about Jesus to anyone unless God lays that sort of call on me. It'd be quite wrong of me to do so without a vision like this. It's what I've called before example theology. And it's frequently a very unhelpful way of reading the book of Acts. Yes, it's true that God did speak to Paul in this dramatic, unmistakably supernatural way. Yes, he's done so in the lives of some Christians since then. I think we've got to say that. And yes, he could do the same again today. Of course he can. He's sovereign. Nonetheless, I venture that this kind of guidance was the exception, not the rule, even for the Apostle Paul. He almost says as much in 2 Corinthians 11 to 13 at one point. Such supernatural guidance isn't to be considered normative for Christians today. Or rather, God's guidance is normative in the sense that his guiding hand is always at work in our lives. Whether we know it or not, he's guiding us. When Christians look back on their lives, they can often tell that. And sometimes, very occasionally, he will show people unmistakably in advance what his plan is. It doesn't happen very often, though. But when it does happen, it's a lovely reminder that he's guiding our lives all the time, unseen, even when the guidance doesn't come in advance. And on this occasion, that advance guidance is what happened. And it's very appropriate when you consider that this was a dramatic new departure, a new step forward in Jesus' advance through the world, an unrepeatable first as the gospel broke new ground into Europe. And from there, we now know throughout the world. Well, let's move on and see what happened once that boundary line had been crossed in verses 13 to 15. On the Sabbath... We went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who'd gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. We're looking there at, this is great, the first convert in Europe. 
not perhaps the first person we would have selected as a bridgehead. Her name was Lydia. Obviously, she was a woman, although to choose a woman first wouldn't have been an obvious thing in the first century world. She was a professional, too, a cloth dealer in the rag trade. In fact, for her to be a dealer in purple cloth tells you she was an upmarket dealer. And what's notable here is the quiet beginning of the work in Philippi. And we're not going to go on in our series to the next little bit, but really this bit here, by the riverside, is the calm before the storm. It's going to be quite an uproar by the end of the chapter. But it begins down by the river with a quiet group of God-fearing women. And when you think about the lengths which God had gone to to get Paul there to this place, I suppose you could feel a bit of a letdown here. It seems a bit disappointing in a way, doesn't it? When they get to Philippi, unlike so often, there's no synagogue, apparently, for Paul to begin his base and base his work in. What that means, in fact, is that there were fewer than 10 adult Jewish males in that location. When you couldn't gather uh, in a locality enough people to form a synagogue, it was still the custom for Jewish people or Jewish uh, hangers-on, the God-fearers, to meet on the Sabbath in the towns wherever they were scattered across the eastern Mediterranean. They'd still meet. And the regular meeting, if there was no synagogue, was often just for a time of prayer outside the town by a river. You think about that psalm from the time of the exile, Psalm 137. By the rivers of Babylon we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. It's often the place of prayer. So that's the situation here. It's the gathering of Jews and God-fearers that is too small for a synagogue. But there's no hint that Paul was disappointed by these small beginnings. He doesn't query God's guidance. He doesn't say, well, why ever did you bring me here, God? Why all those shut doors? Why am I here in Philippi? Even if with a vision Paul and Silas had been expecting more than this on their arrival in Macedonia, they just did what they could with what was in front of them. With the opportunities that presented themselves, they just took the next step ahead of them, and God worked. I wonder if you noticed how Luke, the writer, leaves us no doubt that it was the supernatural work by Jesus and not Paul's clever speech that converted Lydia, the first European convert. Look at the end of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the message. It's a beautiful phrase, isn't it? Description, it's, it's not the way we often talk about conversion. I was brought up on that lovely Holman Hunt picture of Jesus outside the door of our lives. And we often talk on the strength of that as if the handle to our hearts is on the inside. So people talk about us opening our hearts, which is not necessarily wrong. That's how it feels at the time when we come to Christ, if we have that experience But when Luke talks about Lydia, he doesn't say she opened her heart to respond to the gospel. He says the Lord opened her heart, which is the right way around. The handle really is on the outside, 
and the Lord opens it. Naturally, our, our hearts are locked tight against the gospel normally. It's not just that we don't want to open our hearts to Christ. We could not, even if we wanted to. It is Christ who conquers Lydia's heart. But there's nothing brutal or cruel about Jesus' conquest. It's not as if he overrides her personality. C.H. Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher from Victorian times, said this, When you see a chest wrenched open, the hinges torn off, the clasp destroyed, then you discern at once the hand of a thief. But when you observe a chest deftly and smoothly opened with a master key, you discern the hand of the owner. So Jesus opens hearts, not like a wild beast tearing open its prey, cruelly forcing his victory on them, but like an owner opening his treasure. And a mark of his victory in Lydia's case was that he opened not just her heart to Paul's message, He opened her home to the messengers as well. That was a sure proof that she really had received Christ. So that was the first Christian convert in Europe. Well, what are the lessons for us in what we read here? Now, if it's Jesus' work to open people's hearts, then it's a little reminder, isn't it, that what we're seeing here is the butterfly effect of Jesus' life being lived out here. One small disturbance in Palestine all those years ago with ongoing effects further afield here in Philippi much later on. And, of course, that still goes on today. My father-in-law is a clergyman in a largest church. He's still working past the age of, I think he's getting on for 85 now, in a largest church. He's still got a role there with couple of thousand attending each week just outside Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, still going strong, Um, officially retired but unretirable. And he's been an encouragement to me in the work I do in a much smaller church for one simple reason. He always stresses the same thing to me and to Susu. His great lesson to me is this. It doesn't matter how big or small a church is, God's kingdom always grows the same way. Then he'll pause for effect. And he'll say, one by one by one. So this is from somebody who, for pretty much 50 years, has regular, regularly preached to four-figure audiences. He's a remarkable evangelist, but he knows that big crowds are not the big deal. One by one by one, people are added to the kingdom. And isn't that the lesson of Lydia's conversion? Paul arrives in Philippi, the leading city of the region. Perhaps he's harboring big hopes for a really significant work. And what happens? Well, initially it's a small beginning. One woman comes to faith. Or rather, because it's his work, not ours, God brings one woman to faith. But that is a sign that the butterfly effect is operating. Jesus is still at work reaching people one by one by one. And therefore, the take-home lesson for us, if you're a Christian, don't despair of any of your friends. You're not where you are by accident, this passage says to me. 
We think of the dead ends in our lives, um, the roadblocks where we wanted to go in one direction and we couldn't, the things that led us into a job that we might wish to change, um, a, a home that we might wish to have relocated somewhere else, a marriage that we find difficult, a church which is imperfect. Well, we're not where we are by accident. God is sovereign over all those different twists and turns that lead us to where we are now. We're here because God has placed us here. And he can reach the people he wants to reach through us, one by one by one. So keep doing what you do. Keep lending a Christian book to a family member, even if we feel other family members' eyes are boring into us as we do that. Keep sending those birthday cards and writing an appropriate Bible verse on them to the old friend that we haven't seen for a while, but who we've recently heard news about, somebody who's on our hearts. Keep inviting the person who's going through a rough time at work for a drink and a chat during the lunch break, uh, and so on. It's why we pray for God to do this work in other people's lives. It's why we join with other Christians in prayer meetings, in prayer triplets, to ask him to do it. It's his work, not ours, and it's his speciality. So don't despair. God is absolutely committed to opening people's hearts to receive the message of the good news. And if we had non-Christians here tonight, I would need to say to them, don't despair of yourself either. The the non-Christian that comes to a service here at All Saints is not here by accident when it happens. If they're listening to God's word, now, in the future, on an Explore Plus course, whatever it might be, that will be how the Lord Jesus opens their heart and their life to his amazing message. So, unimpressive as the gospel work often is, in our perception. That's how the butterfly effect of Jesus' life goes on. Of course, it's what we'd expect when you think back to the unimpressive figure strung up on a cross where it all began. We'll be remembering him in a moment at communion. Let's sing to him our next song before we prepare for uh, the bread and the wine in a moment. It's a newish song, King of Heaven, Robed in Light. The musicians will give us a a good strong lead to get us singing it right. Let's stand when they strike up playing together.